0: You are now tuned in to the Asian Madness Podcast, a podcast where we discuss all things true crime, mysterious, morbid, and odd from the other side of the world. I'm your host, Jessica. Please sit back, relax, and let's dive into this week's topic. Hi, everyone. Before I begin this week's episode, I would like to play a promo for a great new podcast that I think everybody should listen to. This podcast is hosted by Kate. The name of the podcast is Ignorance Was Bliss. Please take a listen. Murder. Obsession. Addiction. Panic. Schizophrenia. Mania. Violence. Survival. I'm Kate. As a forensic psychologist and crisis clinician, I was in the middle of a lot of those experiences. It was my job to come up with an explanation for how the hell did we get here and what happens next. And I'd like to share some of those stories with you. Just make sure that you're ready. Because sometimes, after I'm done... You'll think, I felt better before I knew that. You can find Ignorance Was Bliss under IWB Podcast, on Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, or on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. If you're looking for someone with professional insight and a voice, this is a podcast you must check out. Now... Let's go on and start this week's episode. Yemen, officially known as the Republic of Yemen. It's a southern state located in the southern tip of the Arabian Peninsula. Continent-wise, it is located in Western Asia. Yemen is around 204,000 square miles, pretty much the same size as the state of California. The capital of Yemen is Sana'a which is also their largest city. The official language is Arabic, and the main religion is Islam. Population of Yemen as of recent is around 30 million, with almost half its population under 15 years old. Yemen clearly has a very high fertility rate. The biggest ethnic group in Yemen are Arabs, followed by Afro-Arabs, South Asians, and then Europeans. The history of Yemen can be traced back thousands of years starting with the Sabaean Kingdom, also known as the Biblical Land of Sheba. From then on, the country has undergone changes from a Jewish influence rule to Christianity. Then Islam eventually spread over the entire country in the 7th century, where several different dynasties came and went. Yemen was divided into North and South Yemen in the 20th century and they united in 1990. Yemen is a developing country and is considered the poorest country in the Middle East. Yemen's corruption index is very high, and the entire country has been in a state of political crisis since 2011, with its citizens protesting poverty, unemployment, corruption, and their corrupt president, Ali Abdullah Saleh, who had already been president since the 1980s, The president had made plans to change the constitution. He wanted to get rid of the term limit for a president, which would make him president for life. That idea didn't sit well with the people, and he was eventually kicked out. The vice president took over and won a one-man election in 2012. The Yemeni civil war broke out eventually in 2015 with former President Saleh siding with the Houthis a.k.a. Ansar Allah, a religious political military movement who took over Sana'a, the capital of Yemen, also resulting in the real president, President Hadi, to flee the country. This military siege brought about a Saudi Arabian military to join in, aiming to help President Hadi fight back. This war had affected food imports that led to famines, lack of clean water, and a huge cholera outbreak. The former corrupt president, Saleh, attempted to cut ties with Ansar Allah, but was instead accused of treason and was assassinated last year, in December, when he was trying to flee the capital city. The Yemeni civil war is still ongoing. The history of Yemen and its surrounding areas is very rich in culture and also very lengthy, definitely something worth looking into. I've decided to get out of my Asian comfort zone and venture to another part of Asia, as in West Asia. I am very unfamiliar with this territory and all the cultural aspects that go with this place. In the end, murder is universal and it happens in every single country and culture. This week I'll be telling you about the murders committed by Muhammad Adam Omar, also known as the Yemen or the Sana'a Ripper. Because real victim count is unknown, but it falls anywhere between 2 to 67. Yes, it's a rather huge difference, but you'll find out why later. Because I'm treading in unfamiliar territory, please let me know if you catch me making any unforgivable mistakes. I even googled how to pronounce certain words and certain names, so I hope you'll be able to forgive me if I make any mistakes. As usual, this episode will probably contain some graphic descriptions of murder and violence, so please proceed with caution. So, Muhammad Adam Omar was born around the year 1952. Omar is not from Yemen. He's actually from Sudan. Not much is known about his family life and childhood, except for two very important details. As a child, he enjoyed killing and skinning rabbits. Of course, this doesn't make someone a murderer or a psychopath later on in life. It's not known as to whether he hunted these small animals or if it was more about torturing these animals. The second important life event from his childhood was pretty intense and horrible. When he was around 7 years old, his mother committed adultery his father found out and took things to the extreme. He not only killed the lover but also cut the lover up into pieces, basically taking matters and justice into his own hands. I don't know how much this could have influenced Omar's mentality, but I'm going to assume it did do some damage. Before finally settling down in Yemen, Omar lived in various different places, including Lebanon, Kuwait, Nigeria, and Jordan. When he arrived in Yemen, he took up a job at the University of Sanaya, working as a morgue attendant. This university housed Yemen's first medical school, and among its graduates were the first women doctors in Yemen. It probably sounds like the perfect job for a serial killer or someone who has very, well, distinct fetishes. In reality, it kind of did help him get away with doing what he did for several years. He was able to indulge in his activities from 1995 to 1999. I know I usually go in chronological order when discussing murderers idiots and their stupid crimes, but for this case, I am going to jump directly to what led to his arrest and provide the details afterwards. In December of 1999, an Iraqi student, Zainab Saud Aziz, who was studying at the university, mysteriously disappeared. Everyone initially believed the girl was kidnapped by someone, probably trying to shut her up about a certain scandal involving the school's rigged grading system. When her uncle came around the university looking for her, he also disappeared. This is when people really began to believe that this was a major case of conspiracy and kidnapping. Soon after, though, it was discovered that the uncle had not actually been kidnapped, but was actually arrested and held for a while, though without charge. Days turned into weeks, and Zainab was still missing. The family members started hearing rumors about Zainab getting murdered or detained by government intelligence for participating in political activities. But when her family looked into that, it was another dead end. Oddly enough, her school records had all vanished from the university at around the same time. Doesn't this smell like conspiracy? So weird. As weeks turned into months, Zainab's family began to think she might actually be dead and never coming home. But there was one last hope for Zainab's mom. She somehow believed that the morgue attendant had to be involved, but she just didn't have any proof of it. She pretty much begged the police to take a look into Omar and see if there was anything odd about him. I guess this is a mother's intuition, but it's really difficult to get the police to look into people based on intuition. No one likes to go on a wild goose chase, and if you happen to be wrong, the reputation of the accused might actually suffer for this mistake. But not this time. The police questioned Omar like she asked, but let him go when they found nothing odd with him. This was when Zainab's mother heard from her daughter's friends that she had been seen with Omar shortly before her disappearance in December. Location? Near the school morgue. With this small piece of information, Zainab's mother managed to get the police to look into Omar once again. But this time, to search the school morgue as well. Her insistence truly paid off this time. So what did they find in the morgue, you ask? Every source tells me a different story, so I'll go with something a bit generalized. My apologies. Several bodies of young women were discovered all over the morgue many of them missing various body parts. Some were skeletons, some were torsos, some were just random body parts. But of course, finding body parts and dead people in a morgue isn't exactly strange. But they probably did have a correct and accurate way of keeping track and preserving what should be in there. For example, if you find a random arm lodged behind a counter or stuffed in a grocery bag, that might be a bit suspicious. According to sources, there may have been more than 10 victims buried around the university and inside the morgue sewage system. Among them was the body of Zainab. Following this discovery, Omar was then arrested and his story would soon be revealed. First though, allow me to finish Zainab's story. Omar had allegedly offered to give Zainab a good grade for her autopsy class in exchange for 2,500 US dollars. Zainab seemed to have agreed to it initially, but later on, she either failed to meet his demands or she decided to back out. Either way, Omar probably sensed the danger of blackmail or having his plan discovered, so he lured Zainab into the school morgue and killed her there. He hit her over the head until she was dead. Omar was initially charged with the murder of 16 women, nine of which were students at the university. He admitted to the 16 murders, then shocked the entire public by admitting to 11 more murders committed in Sudan and possibly 40-plus more in the previous Arab countries he lived in. Reports state that Omar was at one point kicked out of both Kuwait and Jordan, and also at one point served time in Israel for an unknown crime. This confession sent law enforcement back to those countries to investigate further. Although many female students had gone missing during this time, not everyone wanted to report their daughters missing. Some did report and complain to the university, but there were some that wanted to keep it on the down low possibly fearing scandal and gossip. According to his confession, his first murder in Yemen happened in 1995 where he killed a Somali girl named Fatima. He lied that he was a professor at the College of Medicine and began a sort of relationship with her. According to him, they had sexual intercourse various times at the morgue. He took her to the university morgue one final time and killed her. Another victim of his, Yasmin al-Alawadhi, fell in love with him, but he murdered her after hearing that she was pregnant. He showed some remorse later for killing her, as he did believe that she loved him. His MO for murdering these women were usually the same. He would lure them to the university morgue, hit them over the head until they died. After they were dead, he would skin them, cut off their hands and feet dissolve the body parts and chemicals, and finally, he would keep the bones as trophies. It was said that he also would sell the hair of his victims to wig manufacturers and sell the organs at high prices. The organ selling part, he denied, though. When he was asked why he murdered these women, he said he just couldn't help it. Quote, When I saw women, especially beautiful ones, Something happened inside me that I could not resist at all. Despite showing regret for killing them, he just had the urge to kill them, and he said himself that if he did not receive an adequate punishment, he will very likely go back to his crimes. Before the trial was over, Omar retracted his previous confessions of killing 16 women in Yemen and all the other 50 plus in other areas. It was a pretty difficult investigation, and one main reason he retracted his previous confessions was when one of his supposed victims turned up alive and well at his trial. Awkward. He then said he only murdered two, one of which was Zainab. Another was a Yemeni student. He stuck to his newest version and was sentenced to death on November twentieth, 2000, for the two deaths he admitted to. Execution is the punishment for murderers, rapists, and drug smugglers under the Islamic Sharia law. Omar believed that he has sinned greatly, and in order to be purified, he had to be executed. His crimes were so offensive and caused such an uproar in the university that hundreds of students gathered at the university and protested against the university administration and security guards for not keeping the students safe and for neglecting their duties of providing a safe environment. The General Union of Yemeni Students also accused the university of Sana'a for negligence and incompetence. The students protesting demanded that Omar should be publicly executed and put on display. Muhammad Adam Omar was executed on June twentieth, two 2001, in front of 30,000 people. I cannot imagine doing anything in front of 30,000 people, let alone getting executed. Social anxiety to the max. He was brought out to public square near the university in Sana'a, And first received 80 lashes for drinking alcohol, something that is not allowed under Yemen's Islamic law. After receiving the 80 lashes, he remained face down on the floor. His executioner stood between Omar's legs and shot him five times through his heart with an assault rifle. Public executions aren't uncommon in these parts at all. Rapists, murderers, and pedophiles tend to get publicly executed, and it is something everyone flocks to see. I believe it is their form of justice and the way to see for themselves that one more monster was off the streets. Zainab's mother, the person who helped get this investigation and arrest rolling, was not present at Omar's execution. She initially asked the Yemeni authorities to let her kill him, but obviously they said no. She was not there to see him get executed, so a part of her still believes that he might still be alive somewhere. Must be a haunting thought to live with every single day. If you think this is the end of the story, you would be slightly mistaken. As straightforward as this case may sound, there's actually a whole other conspiracy theory behind Omar and his crimes. At first it might sound slightly outrageous, but when you really think about it, it could actually be possible. So here's the conspiracy theory. Omar was actually taking the blame for a sex and murder scandal involving powerful figures such as politicians. Remember I mentioned that the country was ranked pretty high in the corruption index? If you take that into consideration, this theory might actually not be too far-fetched. The conspiracy theory stated that Omar was a simple man working in a morgue, making him the perfect candidate for this job. He just had to help dispose of women that have somehow died when working as prostitutes or escorts in exclusive brothels in Sana'a. Although these brothels did exist, they were usually very exclusive and secretive. So it would make sense that they would try to keep everything about it out of the spotlight, especially anything negative, such as people dying. The government, the court, and the president at the time, President Saleh, denied such accusations. They insisted that Omar was the only culprit in these murders. There is no exclusive brothel and Omar did not have any accomplices either. What makes it even more suspicious is that Omar made a last attempt to make a statement regarding the morgue murders before his death sentence, but it was denied. Some people have trouble believing that someone could kill so many people and dispose of them all by themselves. I think it's definitely possible since he worked in a rather remote area of the university and with plenty of tools. Omar's lawyer said that he was only given a limited amount of time to discuss with his client. Maybe it's because he's his lawyer, but he believes that there is more to what meets the eye, and that one day the world will realize that Omar never killed anyone. What do you think? One thing worth noting is that Omar didn't get the chance to undergo any psych evaluation. According to sources online, Omar was all smiles and appeared calm when he was in court and when he was retelling his crimes. He smiled happily when the court was giving out the gory details and even seemed to be proud of his work. There was also a rumor that Omar videotaped some of the rapes and mutilations, but either they have been confiscated, destroyed, or he was just making it up. There's an online post made by a citizen of the world who seemed to be very fascinated and intrigued by Omar and his case. I use the word fascinated somewhat sarcastically because of what this person writes. He states that Omar is, well, fascinating. Then he goes on to say how perverse and evil the Yemen society and the people are for wanting to publicly crucify Omar. He described the people as desperate to satiate their homicidal bloodlust. Interesting concept. Lastly, he said that he loved the fact that Omar cut off and dissolved the hands and feet of his victims. Apparently, this person has a foot fetish because he described keeping the foot and toe bones as erotic. That's probably enough internet for today. So there you guys have it. The maybe real, maybe fake tale of the Yemen slash Sanaya Ripper. Whether or not he is a scapegoat, he did end up confessing to the murder of at least two students. So I doubt he is completely innocent. I definitely had a great time venturing out of my comfort zone and I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. As usual... I would like to thank the following people for reviewing my podcast. From the U.S., Baheite? I'm sorry. I really am. Chelsea from Based on a True Crime Podcast. Kate from Ignorance Was Bliss Podcast. Marsman61. Keen262. From the U.K., Ed Speranto. And from Canada, Janine Madden. Thank you all for your support. And for my Patreons, thank you Shadira Monsanto from the Netherlands. You have been very supportive online, and it is really flattering. Also, there is Alison Lee, who wrote me a while ago with her case suggestions, and no worries, Allison. I will get to you soon. Thank you again for tuning in to the Asian Madness Podcast. Please help me by rating, reviewing this podcast. If you're on social media, please look for me under the handle AsianMadnessPod. If you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, do not hesitate to write me at AsianMadnessPod at gmail.com. I truly appreciate each and every one of you for being here. I'm your host, Jessica. Till next time.